and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. Many, many years ago, there was a daily game show on television called Truth or Consequences. Um, Long, long before Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. In fact, it was the first daily syndicated television show, game show. Um, And, you know, the premise of the show is pretty simple. They'd ask a question, and you had your choice of, if you didn't answer the question correctly, then you instead accepted the consequences of not having the true answer. And, you know, the consequences were pretty mild, especially in comparison to later day game shows like Fear Factor and all of that kind of thing. Um, Pretty simple things, but nonetheless, there were some consequences of getting it wrong. I like that title of that game show, Truth or Consequences, because in life, we either choose in every situation in life to make an answer base a decision, take an action based on truth, or we suffer the consequences, whether mild, whether small or great, for not knowing or not living that truth. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's important that we know the truth and that we live it. It's important that we do that Because if we don't, then even if it's unintentional, we do receive the consequences of not knowing that truth. Just like um, you may not intend to step off of that building, (laughs) but if you step off of the building, you're going to suffer the consequences of that action because it's true that there is a law of gravity. And in all of life, we have truth or consequences, and that's why 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us that God will have, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. God will have all men to be saved, period. No. No. It doesn't end there. It's more than salvation. God's will for man is more than he would get saved. It's more than he would get born again, more than he would go to heaven. God's will for man is not only that he would be saved, but also to come unto the knowledge of the truth. And there is one knowledge of the truth that is accurate. It's truth. And truth, there's not a different truth for every individual. It's not like, well, I've got my truth and you've got your truth. You ever hear people say that kind of thing? Well, you know, you got your truth, I got my truth. Okay, my truth is I can punch you in the face and it won't hurt. 
Do you want to have your truth be that it will? You know, there's one thing that's true in every situation. And God wants us to know what the truth is and to know it accurately. Look at John chapter 8. It's only through truth that we enjoy all of God's benefits, all of God's blessings, all that God desires us to have in life. And that's why in John chapter 8, verse 31, we read, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, in my what? Word. Word. Then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what? Free. If you continue in my word, Jesus Christ said, if you continue learning that word, if you continue knowing it, if you continue doing it, if you continue acting on that, then you'll know the truth because his word was God's word and God's word is truth. And that truth is what makes us free in life. It's the word that is truth that makes you free. You know, I often hear people quote that verse, you know, they may not even know they're quoting that verse, but people, you'll often hear people say that the truth will make you free. And nine out of ten times that I hear somebody say that, they're not referring to the Bible, they're referring to, you know, some fact, if it is in fact a fact. But that doesn't make you free, you know. Some true fact may be a benefit to you, but real freedom in life comes from knowing God's word that is truth. And it's not enough for a believer, for a Christian, to just love God and to love Jesus Christ and even to just be loving to other people. It's certainly not enough to just be a good person. God wants us to have the freedom that comes with truth. And it's only through that truth that we can have all of God's benefits in our lives. But even that basic thing of salvation itself, you know, that one you better have right when it comes to knowing what is truth regarding salvation. I said it's not enough to be a good person, and yet if you asked, if you went out there today and stopped 100 people walking down the street and said, said to them, do you think you're going to heaven? And if they believed in heaven, you know, and they said yes, you'd ask if you followed that up with why, you would probably more than any other answer hear people randomly say, well, because I'm a good person, because I'm a good person. As if they could be so good that, of course, they just deserve everything that heaven has because they're just such a good person. But being a good person isn't the way that you get to heaven. God's Word is very specific about what it takes to be saved, how we get born again. And when you're talking about something as important as eternal life, you better have that right, you know? I'd sure hate to find out I was wrong. Mm. And yet when it comes to the things of God, 
There's so much that we do need to know. We need to know not only salvation, but we need to know what God's will for us is. We need to know how we can truly worship God. We need to know how we can walk in God's power. We need to know how we can enjoy all of the benefits, all of the goodness of God, all of His promises that He's given to us. Look at John chapter 4. And people so often don't. And people, some people, don't know, but they think they know. Some people don't know, and they know they don't know. And some people do know. In John chapter 4, we read about a woman who didn't know, but she was smart enough to ask about it. And this is the record. <clears throat> we won't take the time to read the entire record. This is the record that's, that's referred to often as the woman at the well. Background of where we're going to pick up. Jesus Christ, he's been traveling with his disciples. He comes to a well in this public area, and he asks the Samaritan woman to give him a drink. And she is really surprised that he would ask her for a drink of water, considering that she was a Samaritan woman. More significant than the fact that she was a woman was the fact that she was a Samaritan. And I'll read the verses we're going to read, and then I'll explain a bit more of the background of why that was so shocking. But we'll pick this up in verse 19 of John 4. Verse 19, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. <clears throat> She's pointing to a literal mountain. Uh, Gabir, if I remember how to say that. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. <laughs> you don't even know what you're worshiping. And I guess at this point I'll explain the background. To fully understand this record and to have a more complete understanding of what's going on here, you have to know a bit of the historical background of Samaria and what occurs in the history of Israel. And I won't go into this in, in great detail. You can, you can find more detail, um, a lot of sources, but you can find it in my book, The Bible Through the Ages. <laughs> I go into this history. But in the history of Israel, after a long time of God warning them to turn away from their idolatry and telling them that if they didn't turn away, they would be taken captive by a different people. They were taken captive. Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians, that nation of Israel. And Samaria was part of that nation of Israel that was taken captive by the Assyrians. They took them out of their land. They took them out of the land of Israel, and they scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire, which was the biggest and greatest empire at that time, one of the great civilizations of history. 
they then in turn brought other people, foreigners, different Assyrians of different Assyrian nations, and put them in the land of Israel in that region of Samaria. Later on, Judea, the other part of the divided kingdom, is also taken captive by the Babylonians. The Judeans, taken captive by the Babylonians, eventually returned to the land of Judah when, after the Persians beat the Babylonians. And under King Cyrus, they returned to the land. The Israelites, this is that divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, the Israelites as a whole, never returned to the land. Now, there was a remnant of Israelites left in the land at the time that the others were carried away. There's a handful, handful, not literally, but, you know, there's a small remnant that returns, small number of them that do return. But for the most part, those are what's, what comprise what's known, referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel. They're just lost. Now, those that are in the land, then they marry these unbelievers. They mingle with these unbelievers from the Assyrians that are in that land. And so the Samaritans now are sort of a mixed breed. And because of that, they're looked down upon by the Judeans and everybody else in the later nation of Israel or, or Judah. Part of what, there's a long history and it gets involved, but when the Judeans return, they're rebuilding the temple. And when they're rebuilding the temple, the Samaritans, they want to help out. But because it's the temple, because these guys may or may not be kosher, they're not allowed to help out in that effort. So then they say, well, fine, we'll just build our own temple. And they build their own temple up in this mountain. Which then, by the time you get to Jesus Christ's time and the record that we're reading about, because of all these other invasions that happen over the ensuing history, that temple is destroyed. But it doesn't keep the Samaritans from praying to that mountain, worshiping up in that mountain or facing towards that mountain where that temple once was. That's why... She's saying, you know, we worship in this mountain. You worship in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where the temple was. So that's the historical background to this stuff. Jesus Christ said, you know, you don't even know what you're worshiping. And the Samaritans, it was more than just this, this what I've told you. The only part, the Samaritans had their own version of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Um, it was similar, some changes. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, known in Judaism as the Tanakh. So they rejected the, the prophets and the other writings. All of that was rejected by them. So they didn't know what they were worshiping. They, were, they, they believed in the same God, and they were kind of trying to worship, but they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus Christ says to them, the hour's coming, and now is, verse 23, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, 
For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and if you're going to truly worship him, and in spirit and truth means to truly spiritually worship him, then you have to do it by way of spirit. And that's not singing songs and playing music and what's now called worship and praise. That's nice, but that's not worshiping God in spirit and in truth as he requires. In order to do that, it requires the operation of the manifestations, the manifestations of Holy Spirit. But here again, you know, a lot of people are more clueless when it comes to that topic than the Samaritan woman was when it came to worship. But this is why God wants us to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That we would know what it is to truly worship God and that we'd be able to do it. God certainly is deserving of our worship. If we love God, then certainly we want to worship Him. So we want to know how to do it. And that's just one of the many areas where it's important to have a knowledge of the truth. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. Here's another record where Jesus Christ is dealing with some people of, of Israel. And that also have gotten it very wrong when it comes to the things of God and what you should and should not be doing. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Now, here again, I'm going to give delve a little bit into the history of what happened during this time of captivity and the return from it to give you a greater appreciation of what's going on here. So they got carried away first Israel, then Judah, into different lands because of their idolatry. And then, as I said, the Judeans came back. When they came back, they came back recognizing that the reason why they had ever been taken captive and the reason why all this bad stuff happened was because they had turned away from the true God and had turned unto idols. And they decide, well, darn it, we're not going to make the same mistake again. We're going to make sure that we stay on the straight and narrow. We're going to get this right. We're going to do whatever it takes to make sure we're doing God's will, that we're doing the law, and that we don't forget. <clears throat> Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Sounds like, you know, great heart. And it was. Now, a lot of things kind of get lost and mixed up during that time, one of which is the priesthood, okay? Because the priesthood, they were a tribe of Levi, and that wasn't part of Judah that went. So 
the, the priesthood itself is, is not exactly that same priesthood that was descended from Levi, that tribe. Um, you had some of those, but that's all kind of a mixed up thing. And a lot of things are sort of changed. While they were in captivity, those that did turn their hearts to God, or, or perhaps had always kept it somewhat there, now... This is the time where synagogues first develop. You've heard the term synagogue, mm -hmm. but you won't read about synagogues in the Old Testament. That doesn't appear till the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you had the temple. That was the only place that people went to learn about God, to worship God, to do anything at all. Tabernacle before that. Tabernacle was a tent, just a temporary place, in a temple, a building. Synagogues, kind of grew up in those lands during the diaspora, the diaspora, not diaspora, diaspora. <laughs> they grew up at that time where people would go to receive instruction. And that when they came back, in fact, according to Judaism, there was what's called the Great Synagogue, and that's not referring to a building, but rather a group of 120 elders and leaders who now get together to kind of set the path of how we're going to make sure that we do things right. It's in this time frame, or short, not right after the captivity, but, but around 150 B.C., that the Pharisees, that that sect grows up. Sadducees are a little bit harder to pin down of when they come about. But you have these different groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that you often read about in the Gospels. You also read about, as we are right here, the scribes. The scribes, they, Ezra was a scribe, if you read about that period of time when they're rebuilding the wall. And the scribes were those who not only did the copying of manuscripts, but they were, it was their job to teach people the law, to make sure that people understood this stuff. They wanted to make sure, as I said, that they got it right. So there were things in the law that were stated but not fully explained. For example, it was stated in the law that, that you should not work on the Sabbath, that it was unlawful to work on the Sabbath. But people began to wonder, well, what exactly constitutes work? What's considered work and what's not work? Because we don't want to get this wrong. So it was the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis that were responsible to answer those questions and to teach these things. And their interpretation of the written law became known as the oral law, the tradition that's being referred to here in this record. Because this oral law, which, which, which was their interpretation of the written law, soon not only becomes on the same plane as the written law, by the time you get to Jesus Christ's life and ministry, by many it is regarded as more important and greater than the written law. In fact, they rewrite history to say, well, when Moses was up there on the mount, not only did he receive the written law, but God gave him the oral law then. And he taught it. 
And it was passed down by generation and generation. Now, that did not happen, okay? But that's what they said. This is how they had so elevated this oral law. It <clears throat> becomes referred to as the Mishnah, because eventually this oral law, to sort of codify it, does become written, and the Mishnah is part of a book that you may have heard of called the Talmud. So you may not have heard of the Mishnah or the Gemara, which is the other part of the Talmud, which is basically commentaries about their <laughs> expositions known in the Mishnah. Lots of stuff, lots of stuff, you know. They had so many laws, it, it you know, it, they outdo living here in New York. I mean, <laughs> for example, they had 39 different specific categories of work. Now, I won't read them all to you. You can look at this if you want later. But quickly, some of them. Carrying, number one. Couldn't carry water, couldn't carry wood. But that's okay because you couldn't burn also on the Sabbath day. Nor could you extinguish a fire, number three, on that list. You could not, okay, this one, swear I'm not making this up. You could not finish anything. Now, that didn't just mean like finishing a table, although that was part of it, or finishing leather. You, that finishing meant you could not tear anything. This is the part I'm telling you I'm not making up. It, this continues in strict Judaism today where they will not tear toilet paper. They have to have pre-torn sheets of toilet paper to use on the Sabbath. I'm not, you know, I'm not making fun of people. I'm just telling you what the law, how, how strict this got. You couldn't write, you couldn't erase, you couldn't cook, wash, sew, all these different things. You could not smooth, which was polishing. You couldn't do anything like that. Most of them are, are pretty, you know, self-explanatory, but 39 specific categories. You know what's not on that list, though, interestingly enough? Nothing about healing people. Nothing about healing people. Although that's the one that they're always trying to call work when Jesus Christ did it. Look at Matt, verse 7 of Matthew 15. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into a mouth defileth the man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth the man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the, the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? <laughs> what are you doing, Jesus? What you're teaching here is offending some people. You have to stop this. They're getting offended. Isn't that what you hear now? You can't say certain things because it, it offends people. It's like I saw a meme I liked. <clears throat> it's a meme. It's a little boy, and he goes to his mom and says, I'd like some more food. And the mom says, What's the magic word when we want something? And the boy says, I'm offended. Because <laughs> that's how you get what you want nowadays, right? You just say, I'm offended. Well, the disciples are telling Jesus. They were offended. They're offended. You got to stop this. <laughs> Verse 13, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. 
Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. They were blind leaders of the blind. They didn't know what they were doing. They were following their tradition, but they weren't following the word of God, and they had made the word of God of none effect by their tradition. Whenever man elevates tradition, Whenever man sets in the place of God's word, his own rules, his own regulations, then they make the word of God of none effect. And here they were by their tradition being more concerned about the outside than the inside. They were concerned about this washing. That's part of the whole, you know, oral law, the Mishnah. It's all kinds of specific things about not only washing hands, but pots and pans and so on and so forth of exactly how it all should be done. But none of that had anything to do with the heart of God. And these people who started off so well-intentioned that they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to stray, instead moved into this horrible, strict legalism that was now opposed to the real things of God. So much so that when God sends his only begotten son, they're fighting against him. They're trying to kill him. This same, these people that are descended from those that once wanted to make sure that they didn't somehow break God's law. That's why it's never enough for us to just have good intentions or a good heart or simply the desire to love God. But we have to know what his word truly says. And we have to then walk in that truth if we are going to be free and loving and serving to God. God bless you. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.